else. Now it's time to glorify God through the teaching of his word. This is, I feel like a salesman, and then I have to transition to this, and hopefully I don't try to sell the word. Um, right? It's like i got to market all this stuff, and then boom, we've got to learn from the word of God. And so take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And we're going to pick up at verse 24. We spent a couple of weeks on verse 23. And uh, I thought that was really important that we talk about, you know, Paul's method or style of evangelism and preaching. That was a couple of weeks ago. Then last week we talked about, you know, really what salvation is, what it accomplishes for the life of the person who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repents from their sin. We had 13 things we talked about last week. And uh, I don't know about you, but man, I just enjoyed our service last week exponentially. It was just great. I love talking about and proclaiming what we have in Christ and what has been done on our behalf. That is just, really? Yeah, I could spend my whole life, and hopefully I will, proclaiming what he's done, what's in him, and what he offers to dreadful sinners like me. So good stuff. So we hammered away on 23 for a couple of weeks and, and loved it, just loved it, loved it, loved it. This morning, we're going to continue to examine Paul's sermon to the Galatians at Pisidian Antioch, picking up at 24. Keep in mind, he's gone into this place, this community, and into a synagogue to proclaim Jesus to Jews and wannabe Jews or Gentiles who have somewhat converted. And so he's been preaching this sermon. He's given them a history lesson. He's now gone on to say that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. We've fleshed that out. We've studied that. And now we're going to pick up at 24. He's continuing to hammer away at who Jesus is and why he came. And so it's so vital that we also study this and understand what he's saying here. Let's pray one last time and then we'll just get rocking and rolling. Sound good? Yeah? Come on, people. Here we go. Give me a you. Yeah, all right. All right, it's good. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Father, thank you for this time and and all that you've done in this service so far. And we have come to worship you and glorify you, and and you have blessed us already. What a great family time lesson that our our task and our goal is is to glorify you and and then hearing ways that we could do that to worship you in spirit and truth and beyond that. Just so powerful, Lord, and these songs that are all about the finished work of Jesus Christ, the the blood of Jesus, the cross, and these things. Man, you have just unleashed so much grace and ministry to us so far, and and we pray that you'd continue to do so. Open our hearts and minds to your word right now. I, I believe that not because I do this part of the service, I believe that it just is apart from me. It is the centerpiece of a worship gathering is the proclamation of your word. And, and with that said, I sense a little trepidation. I feel a little fear because it's such a weighty thing. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill this place. Begin to move in the lives of these folks here. We want to uh, not just hear your word and not just have an encounter with you, Jesus Christ. We want to absolutely know without a shadow of, doubt, a shadow of a doubt that you are here and that you have come to do your work to send your Holy Spirit to change us. We came in as A, we want to leave as B, we want to hear and we want to do, and the only way that that's going to happen is if you do something about it, because we do not have the power to change ourselves. We do not have the power to do anything other than really sin. That's all we can do. And so help us this morning, Lord Jesus. May this glorify you, this sermon, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 
All right, are you at 24? Look at it. 24. ESV reads, before his coming. Who? Before Jesus Christ. Before the Messiah. Before the Savior. He's been talking about the Savior. Before the Savior's coming. He says, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Israel, right? Paul tells his listeners that before Jesus, you know, kind of came and began his ministry, obviously he was on earth already, he grew up as a boy, a teen, adolescent, all that stuff, young man, a young adult, but before he broke out and began his ministry, a man named John came and proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Who was Paul speaking of here? John the what? Baptizer, John the Baptist, we usually refer to him as. John the Baptist was the prophet who announced the arrival of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Before John the Baptist came, uh, just a brief lesson here, a historical lesson. Before he came and began to do his ministry and, and what have you, there was about a 400-year period of silence from God. God said nothing to Israel from the time of Malachi through the Maccabean period, as you read in the apocryphal books, those historical books, all the way up to John the Baptist. There was no revelation, no word from God for about 400 years between the Testaments. And so, uh, I don't know about you, I, I don't make it four days without hearing from God. And so you can imagine what the, the climate, the social climate was like. You can imagine what it was like for the people of God, not hearing from their God at all for 400 years, and there was still revelation to come. And so the anticipation, the craziness of that must have been just staggering, but he had not spoken for about 400 years. Now, some of the things that took place during that 400 years of silence, there were a lot of things that took place. Uh, a couple of them, uh, one that would be important was that was when the Pharisees sort of were uh, conceived, if you will, and birthed this group of men who uh, obviously decided to kind of go against the, the cultural evils and to kind of separate themselves as these masters of the Torah and, and these religious guys and all that. And I believe, believe, as Colby would say often, and he does say it often, that, that these men originally started with the right heart, with the right attention. You know, we want to we we not be like the world. We want to be in the world but not of the world, you know. And so this religious group who became very fanatical and very hypocritical. Jesus unleashes on them in Matthew 23 because they were ultimately hypocrites. They weren't even obeying what they were preaching. But this group came about during that period. And another thing that happened that, that is key is that Rome conquered the whole region, the whole area. They took over Israel. They took over, I don't know if we're supposed to call it Palestine because I think that's a new term for it. Uh, but this whole region, this whole area... Uh, basically was taken over by Rome and, and was uh, put under Rome's control and, and government and what have you. And, and so two big things, Pharisees came about, Rome seized control I think around 130 or so uh, BC, don't quote me on it, but those are two monumental things that happened during that period. There were much other things that happened too. It's a fascinating period to study. But you've got this 400 year period of silence where some of these key things took place. Now John the Baptist's ministry 
was entirely preparatory for the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? His entire ministry was about preparing the land, the people, the, 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 the culture, society for the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. And this is illustrated so clearly in Isaiah 43, Malachi 3.1, Matthew 3.3, Matt 11.10, Mark 1.2-3. So his entire ministry was about preparing the people that he proclaimed these things through the coming kingdom, preparing them for the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And because of this... Jesus himself considered John the Baptist the greatest of all the prophets. Matthew 11, 9 to 11. He considered him, in fact he said this, he said, of those born of the womb of a woman, there has never been one better than John the Baptist, never greater than John the Baptist. This man, in Jesus' own words, was the most important and greatest prophet to ever come. And, and, and that's just an incredible thought when you think of people like Isaiah. And you think of people like Ezekiel and Elijah and Hosea and all the miners. And, 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 right? I mean, really? Even Moses to some degree because he was prophetic. This guy, John the Baptist, the guy that wore weird camel's hair suit and ate weird bugs with wild honey and stood in the River Jordan looking like a hippie freak, he was the greatest? Yeah. He was the greatest. Why? Because his entire ministry was based upon preparing the people for the arrival of the Messiah. Not only prophetically saying that he was going to come, but actually identifying him. No other prophet did that. No other prophet did that. Maybe with the exception of Elijah and Isaiah that may have met with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But prior to that encounter, John the Baptist not only announced he's coming, he said, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sins of the world. Amazing. Most important prophet here by Jesus' own testimony. Now, one of the ways in which John the Baptist readied the people for the arrival of the Savior was through performing a baptism of repentance. We see it right here in the text. He had proclaimed a baptism of repentance. And, and what he would do is he would stand on the banks of the River Jordan and, and he would preach about sin and, and then he would invite people to repent, to turn from their sin and then display their turning repentance through being washed in the water, dunked, put under the water for basically the removal of sin in some spiritual sense or some metaphorical sense. But he would basically, he was a fiery preacher. He would stand at the Jordan, maybe up to his waist, and he would preach, turn from your idols, you know, turn from your self-sufficiency, turn from your, your religion, turn from your sins, repent of those things, the kingdom is at hand. Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior is coming. Be prepared for him. Come down here and get dunked is what he would preach. That's what he would do. That was his ministry. It was preparatory. Even the baptism part was preparatory. Now, John's preaching was characterized by a call to repentance. John's preaching was characterized by a call to repentance. Uh, Matthew 3, 1 to 2 says, In those days John the Baptist came 
preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And here's a little excerpt of his preaching. Repent, he said, for the kingdom of heaven is at, is at hand. So his ministry, this is something he said over and over and over, very repetitive. His ministry was characterized by a call to repentance. Interestingly, and it makes complete sense if you think about it, the one that he was announcing to come, Jesus Christ, his ministry was characterized by a call to repentance. Absolutely. Mark 1, 14 to 15. Example, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Praise the Lord for that gospel, that good news. And, he, and it says, and saying, the time is fulfilled. Hey, I'm here and the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, John was saying it's coming. I'm saying it's here. And look what he says. Repent and believe in what? The gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, repent to repent basically means to switch direction in thought and in action. To have a change of heart, a change of mind to the point where your life actually changes and you go in a different direction. It's, it's as simple as me walking in this direction. Repentance means I no longer walk in that direction. I change my mind. I realize that's a bad direction to walk in. This is the path of righteousness. I turn and now I begin to walk on this path. It's that simple. That's what repent means. It means to change direction, to switch direction in thought and in action. Uh, another example, if I tell you to repent and believe in Jesus, which I do every week, I am basically telling you to turn away from your unbelief in Jesus and to put your faith in him. That's what I'm saying when I say repent and believe in Jesus. Turn away from your disbelief. Turn away from your unbelief towards him and proceed towards him and believe in him. That's what repent basically means. Very, very simple thing and, and amazing how we get it screwed up in the church today. Now, John did command his listeners to repent from worldly thinking, worldly living, and to ready themselves for the coming of the Lord who was bringing the kingdom with him. And then the difference with Jesus is, is that he announced that the kingdom had arrived and he commanded his listeners to what? Repent from disbelief, false religion, works righteousness, self-sufficiency, and he commanded them to believe in the gospel, his message about himself and what he was to do for lost sinners. Now, John's ministry was incredibly, it became incredibly popular. It became large. There's a scripture that says that like all of Judea and, and these communities and these areas in Israel came out to listen to him. And I think at one time I did some research on it and he had seen uh, over 100,000 people come through and be baptized and, and hear him preach the coming kingdom. And so his ministry, you know, by today's standards, he, he'd, he'd have had a megachurch. Uh, he'd make Joel Osteen look like, you know, like a seventh-day thingy down the street with six people in it worship. You know, I mean, he was just whatever it is. He, he had an enormous ministry. A lot of people came to the river to listen to him preach and to be baptized by him. And interestingly, Jesus' ministry uh, became incredibly popular and large as well. In fact, it had grown so large, and we'll talk about this later on, it had become so large that some of John's disciples disputed with some of Jesus' disciples over whose ministry was larger. That, doesn't that sound like 
warring churches. Well, we got 3,500 here on Sundays. You got 37. Dang it, we got to figure out something to do to get more. I mean, you know, literally the followers or disciples of John the Baptist, and that's weird to me, and it probably was weird to John because he's like, you're not supposed to be following me. You're supposed to be following Jesus. But some of his disciples disputed with some of Jesus' disciples and said, Man, whose baptism is legit? I mean, look, he's got all these people over here. You got all these people. And what's going on here? John, you better do something about it. His ministry's outgrowing yours. There was just this weird thing that took place. Jesus' ministry was exploding. Now, one of the differences between Jesus' ministry and John's was that Jesus proclaimed, I'm here and the kingdom is here. But he did all these miracles and all these things that John did not do. You know, John did not have some, obviously, many of the abilities that Jesus did. And he wasn't supposed to. He was a mouthpiece. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus came and authenticated what John said and what he said by doing these things that no one else could do. Hence, the thing, reason for miracles. And so, but anyways, both of these guys' ministries were massive. They were huge. Jesus's was larger and, and growing exponentially. And John's was sort of waning. Now... Despite the massive size of both ministries, and this is how it is in every mega church and every church, even a church of this size, despite the massive size of both ministries, only a small amount of people were sincere about their repentance and faith. <laughs> well, all those people out there, you know, it, it just, it just oh, look at all of them, look at all, you know, what do we do? We usually say all of them are believers and all of them it's real and legit and all that, you know, and. And it could be, as we think in churches today, you know, every person that goes to church is obviously a believer. They wouldn't be in church if they weren't, right? And, and look, they give and they do all these things and, you know, and, uh, it's just not the case. Not everyone is truly sincere in their heart uh, with repentance and faith. Uh, and this is how it was in, in both of these ministries. And after John was beheaded, John the Baptist was actually beheaded uh, a little later on, uh, you know, he had spoken out. <laughs> he had spoken out against the sin of Herod Antipas. Uh, what we would say that he did, this is what he actually said. He said, it's not lawful for you to be with your brother's wife. Herod Antipas had taken, I think, Philip's, his brother's wife for himself, stole her right out from under him, and, and, and you know, I don't know if they divorced or whatever, or if he was just shacked up with her, but... He took this man's wife, and John the Baptist knew about it, and the people knew about it. They despised Herod. John the Baptist said, it's not lawful for you to do that. What did he do? He spoke the truth. Uh, and today, uh, we would say he was intolerant. <laughs> okay? In the first century, he spoke the truth, and he, uh, today we would say he was intolerant. Now, what did speaking the truth get him back then? It cost him his head, which I think we're headed towards here in our culture, that at some point... Because what's happening with people when we show this, when we speak truth and they respond the way that they do, uh, and, and some of it, there's, there's violence in it sometimes. I mean, you're talking about this bakery that just lost their business up north in Oregon over speaking the truth. You know, there can be violence, persecution. In other parts of the world, people are beheaded for speaking the truth. Here, you know, you're just attacked by various organizations that try to destroy you and your character and all these things. Well, John the Baptist spoke the truth, and he was actually beheaded. It's pretty sad. And in between all of that, you know, you had Salome doing her little twerk show. You know, you read the story? You read the story? 
this big twerking thing today, you know, and here's this woman does this thing and gets this king all pumped up. And he offers her half the kingdom and she wants John the Baptist's head and then he's killed for it. But ultimately he was killed for speaking the truth. But after he was beheaded, after this thing played out, after he was killed, imprisoned and, and killed, his ministry began to, to wane. It began to dwindle down. Interestingly, Jesus' ministry began to suffer losses. Not after his death. It exploded <laughs> after his death. But during his life and during his preaching, it began to suffer losses. Why? Well, he started to articulate some point during his ministry, I think throughout his ministry, but really in the middle and towards the latter part, he really started to articulate, preach and proclaim the cost of following him, the cost of discipleship. According to Jesus' own teachings, we could summarize, according, if you just do a summary of what he taught when he talked about what it means to follow him and what it's going to cost you, uh, we could summarize it with this statement, when Jesus bids a man to come and follow him, he bids him to come and die Die how? Die to what? How about die to self? How about die to everyone? How about die to everything? Die to self, die to everyone, die to everything that stands in the way of one's relationship and commitment to Jesus Christ, who is to what? Be their life, Lord and Master. Whatever gets in the way, Usually it's us. That's a heavy cost. You mean I have to give over my life? Yeah. You mean I may have to give over some of my relationships and friendships? Yeah, they may have to go. You mean I have to go, might give, have to give over my stuff? Well, you know what? If your wealth blocks you from receiving Jesus Christ, as in the case of the rich young ruler, get rid of it. Liquidate your assets. Give the proceeds to the poor. And come and follow me. The cost of discipleship is great. Why? Because Jesus paid the highest price for the salvation of lost sinners. The elect. He paid with his life. And sinners must be willing to pay the highest price to themselves to receive the salvation of the Lord. And what is the highest price to them? It is their life. That's what it'll cost you to follow Jesus. Biblical salvation is an exchange of life for life. We give our life to Jesus Christ and we receive his life in return. As the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified, killed with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for who? For me. True biblical salvation, the cost to follow Jesus, it's a life for a life. We give our life, we lay it at his feet, and we beg him and plead with him. Divine judge, Messiah, give me your life. Please, that's what we do. If a person is unwilling, listen, if a person is unwilling to exchange their life for the life in Christ, for a life or life in Christ, if they are unwilling to make the trade, guess what? 
I'm going to be a little intolerant. They are unfit for salvation. If you are not willing to give your life for life in Him, you are not fit for salvation. You are not. According to the Scriptures, salvation is all or nothing. All or nothing. Jesus made this clear. When half-hearted people came to Him and expressed an interest in becoming His disciple, He instructed them as follows. Listen to these Amazing examples. To those who were willing to become his disciple, but unwilling to forfeit the riches and uh, their riches and wealth, uh, those things that held them captive, the wealth and riches, he said this to them. Go and sell, I just quoted it, go and sell all your possessions. Go sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then what? Come follow me, Matthew 10, 21. To anyone who says, I'd like to follow Jesus, but, you know, I, I believe I can serve Jesus and mammon. I believe I can serve him and money. I can yield myself to him who is God, and I can yield myself to this other God, the God of green, money, cash flow. To anyone who feels that way, Jesus says, you better liquidate. You better be willing to get rid of all of it if that's what blocks you, if that's what keeps you from me. You're not worthy to receive the salvation that I offer Another example to those who were willing to become his disciple, disciples but unwilling to leave behind the comforts of home. You know, following Jesus, especially back in this day, was, was pretty risky business. It wasn't comfortable. He said this to those who were willing to follow but leave behind the comforts of home or the luxuries of life, if you will, or whatever those things are. He said this, foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests. God has provided homes for all them, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8, 19 to 20. Guess what? You want to come follow me, but you're concerned about your household and the things that you have and your direct TV and your Xbox and your soap operas or whatever it is. Following me means that if those things keep you from following me, you're not fit to follow me. You must be willing to leave the comforts of home if that's what I beckon you to do. Expensive here. Another point to those who were willing to become his disciple but unwilling to leave an elderly parent out of fear of losing their inheritance. What an example we see in Scripture here. He said this... Follow me. This man comes to him and says, Hey, I, I, I'd like to follow you, but I got to go deal with my dad who's dying. What is he saying? Well, I've got an inheritance. I've got things to deal with. I've got affairs to deal with. I'd like to follow you, but I need to go deal with that. He says, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Matthew 8 21 to 22. Wow. Got an aging parent. You don't care about the aging parent, man. What you care about is what you're going to get from that aging parent. Another issue of wealth here. Identity, security, value, hope, purpose wrapped up in the mighty dollar. Jesus said, you're not fit. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. And even if this man had already died, let the dead, let those who do not follow me deal with him. You come and have life. They'll sort it out. 
How about this example to those who were willing to become his disciple but unwilling to live a sacrificial life devoted to him even to the point of suffering physical death at the hands of persecutors. This is what he said to all of those and that's the majority of people I believe. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 24 to 25. It's an exchange of your life for life in him. Life of obedience. Life of listening to him. Life of loving. What did we hear earlier from, uh, from Dan? A life of glorifying the son by doing what he commands. Going where he says go. Doing as he says to do. No matter what, even if it costs you your physical life. Jesus himself made it clear that it will cost us everything to be his disciple and that we must be willing to give our whole life for life in him. And I will add that it takes a miracle of God to make any of this stuff happen. God is the one who must illuminate and open our eyes to his truth, to what I'm saying. The scriptures say that without the aid of the Holy Spirit, without the work of the Holy Spirit, we remain in darkness. Our eyes are scaled. We cannot understand these things. We might hear them, but we cannot do them. In our natural, darkened, unregenerate state, we can't even discern or recognize our need for this life exchange. Lost sinners see no need for repentance... Because they believe that their current path is leading them to God. Lost sinners don't think that they need to change direction. They think that the path they're on already leads them to God. Someone recently did a, a poll and the statistics says that the number one prerequisite for heaven in America is death. All you have to do is die to go to heaven. That's what people believe. Therefore, they do not believe that the current path they're on leads them to hell. They believe it leads them to God. Lost sinners see no need for faith in Christ because they believe they are perfectly capable apart from him. I don't have to put, I don't have to turn and change direction and put my faith in that person, Jesus, who came and who lived because I'm capable of doing my own thing. I'm capable of of taking care of my own eternal spiritual needs. I don't need someone to do those things for me. That's really the way that we think in this country, where we are the country and the media and everything, Hollywood, everything's just about equipping people to be self-sufficient, self-glorifying. There's no need for faith. I'm capable of myself. Lost sinners see no need to be regenerated or born again by the Spirit because they believe the life they are living is actually pleasing to God. I don't have to become a new creation. There's nothing wrong with the first one, with the original. I've got some bad tendencies and things that I picked up and you know, a little tinge of the alcoholism I got from my dad, that bad DNA and these things. But for the most part, I'm a pretty good person and I know that someday I'll stand before this God, creator that you proclaim, Pastor Phil, I'll stand before him and the scales will be pulled out and the good will outweigh the bad and I'm good to go and God is pleased and happy and Peter just you know, gives me a high five and some pounds and brings me right in. 
The Bible, which is the very word of God and our highest authority, is crystal clear about our position and great need for a Savior. What grace. God, people think that God is, is, is a tyrant. And the fact that we have this revelation that shows us our true condition and, and position is an act of love beyond all comprehension. That he has sent us a telegram saying the train is going to plunge off a cliff. And I've provided rescue. You ever thought about your Bible that way? The Word of God? You should. It's amazing. Now, the Bible makes it clear, crystal clear, it's lucid about our position in great need for a Savior. If there were no need for repentance, then why did the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles preach repentance over and over and over again? If there were no need for faith in Jesus Christ, then why does the Bible say that no one can please God apart from faith? You bunch of filthy rags is all we are. That he who trusts in himself is cursed. We read that earlier, Jeremiah 17, 5. He who trusts in the flesh is cursed. The Bible says that no one can please God apart from faith, that he who trusts in himself and his flesh is cursed, and that people are saved by grace through what? Faith. And if there were no need to be regenerated, then why does the Bible say that unless we are born again, regenerated, we will never see the kingdom of heaven? Never. You will never see it unless you are born again. It's what Jesus told Nicodemus. The Bible is lucidly clear about these things. God has spoken. The question becomes to us, are you going to believe what God has said? Or are you going to continue to believe the doctrines of demons, the inclinations of your heart and flesh, and or the pontifications of man? Are you going to believe the message of this world? that says there's no need to be born again, there's no need for a Savior, there's no need to change direction, just make a couple little adjustments and you'll be better. Are you going to listen to that garbage and believe that garbage? Or are you going to believe what God has said? Or are you going to continue to believe those doctrine of demons and all those things? As divine creator and authority over his creation, God commands all to repent and believe what he has said, period. I said all, and I mean it. Doesn't mean that God saves all people, because not all respond by repentance through repentance and faith. But God commands the world to repent. If you do not believe what he has said, what he has made clear, then you will receive his justice. 
Acts 17, 30 to 31. It says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. That's amazing. I have no idea what that means. It's incredible. The times of ignorance God overlooked. He says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that's Jesus, and of uh, this he, Jesus, or of this he has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus says to the world, guess what, God's coming, you better repent because I'm going to judge the world. I'm proving it by how I resurrected my son. All people must repent and will not. They won't. But God's call to repentance goes out to every person. For clarity again, what exactly is repentance? As I said earlier, it is to change one's mind and direction. I like how Kevin DeYoung put it. In repentance, there is confession of sin. When one begins to repent, to turn, they first realize that they're sinful. And they begin to confess the sin to God. To others, maybe. To other believers. But to God, primarily. He says there is, in repentance, there is contrition for sin. That means brokenness. A broken and contrite heart. I realize I'm a sinner. I begin to confess that sin and I'm absolutely shattered over my sin that separates me from God forever. And then he says, in repentance there is consecration to a new way of life. A person begins to realize that they are now consecrated to a life in Christ. To be in Him, to abide in Him, to rest in Him, to be secured in Him, to follow and obey Him. And DeYoung goes on to say, the importance of repentance cannot be overestimated for true biblical salvation. There is no gospel, there is no heaven, and there is no Christianity without the call to repent. Nothing. Basically what he's saying is part of the gospel is repentance. As I was doing research for this message and poking around on the internet... Stumbled across a blog by a guy named Paul Ellis. The blog is entitled, Three Reasons Why I Don't Preach on Repentance. He begins his assault on the practice with this opening statement. Religious people often complain that we grace preachers don't emphasize repentance sufficiently. And he says it's true. I hardly emphasize it at all. But then neither did the Apostle John. You'd think if salvation hinged on our repentance, then it would be in the Gospels, but John says nothing about it, not one word. Neither does he mention repentance in any of his three letters. I guess John must have been a grace preacher. Let me begin by saying that this man and others like him are dangerous and have no business being in a pulpit or leading a church. Let me give you some statistical facts. The main purpose of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is to testify to the life, 
ministry and teachings of Jesus Christ. Okay, that is the driving purpose of those first three Gospels we see in our Bibles. Okay, that's why those were written, to testify to the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus. The main purpose of John's Gospel is to testify to the deity and eternality of Jesus Christ. Have you noticed the difference how John just seems different than the other three? It is different, even though it mimics some of the same things and stories and some of the same teachings. The point of God's gospel is to testify to the deity and eternality of Jesus Christ. This is why when Arians, like Jehovah's Witnesses and others who denounce and reject uh, the deity of Jesus Christ, they're not basing their rejection of the deity of Christ upon a handful of verses. They are basing it on that, but they're also rejecting an entire gospel. You may as well take John out of their Bibles and throw it in the trash and then take the other gospels and manipulate verbiage in those and move on. The point of the synoptic gospels is to testify to the life, ministry, and teachings of Jesus. The main purpose, point of John's gospel is to testify to the deity and eternality of Jesus Christ. These are facts. I didn't make them up. God's written his word in such a way. If you do the research, you see these things. Repent or repentance appears 25 times in the synoptic gospels. You'd think that if repentance was part of our salvation, it'd be found in the gospels. Hey, moron, 25 times. Uh, sorry, I'm being a little insensitive, but it, it, whenever someone twists the truth, when I do it myself, I come down hard on myself. And you better believe it. If you do it, I'm going to come down on you, especially if you're some internet fancy guy like this. Well, fancy pants, my little pony guy. <laughs> Ticks me off. 25 times repentance or repent appears in the synoptic in those three. Repentance Repent or repentance appears 41 times between Acts and Revelation. 41 times after the Gospels to the end of Revelation. Repent or repentance appears another 46 times in the Old Testament. Repent or repentance appears at least, according to my ESV, 112 times in the Bible. If repentance is unnecessary to salvation then why does it appear in the scriptures so frequently? Why did John the Baptist and Jesus say repeatedly, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? This guy's very argument rejects the very thing that Jesus taught. Apparently he's following John. You see the difference? He's not following Jesus. He follows John because John doesn't mention repentance but John's also the same one that said of some people should I call fire down on them since they won't repent you remember that when John said that the sons of thunder don't think for a moment that because John doesn't talk about repentance that he doesn't believe in repentance who was Pete Peter's preaching partner and what did Pete Peter preach over and over and over repent and be baptized for the remission of your sin who preached with him in Solomon's portico who traveled with him to different places John they had dual teaching, preaching responsibilities. Why did Jesus say this to his disciples, the 12, repentance and forgiveness? Actually, the 11 at this point. Repentance for the, uh, he said, 
Where is it? There it is. He said, repentance. I was reading the wrong one. Why did Jesus say this to the 11? They hadn't assigned the other guy yet, okay? Judas is gone. He hung himself. Why did he say this right before his ascension? Repentance and forgiveness of sins. What did he say? Repentance and forgiveness. No, just forgiveness and grace, right? Ellis, whatever your goofy name is. No, he said, repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in my name to all the nations. Again, why did the Apostle Peter say, repent and be baptized? Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or forgiveness, not remission, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why did the Apostle Peter tell Simon the magician, repent therefore of this wickedness? What happens when salvation is proclaimed without a call to repentance? Here's what happens. Paul Ellis, I hope you're listening. People see no need for life change and simply add Jesus to their lives. People invite Jesus in as a helper or they receive him as an antidote to some behavioral problem. People remain in self-sufficiency and hire Jesus as their inner life coach or guru. The end result is you have a church filled with unregenerate, unchanged unholy tares or chaff. John the Baptist said this about Jesus. He said, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John basically said, John the Baptist we're speaking of here, basically said that when the Lord Jesus returns for the second time, he will divide the world, and guess what? He'll divide the visible church by separating the chaff, unrepentant from the wheat, repentant. The wheat, repentant, will be brought into the barn, his kingdom, and the chaff, unrepentant, will be thrown into the unquenchable fire, which is hell. Repentance is key to the gospel. And I truly believe that only the Holy Spirit can grant repentance. And what is it that we truly need to repent from? Can you right now in this very moment gain mastery over all your little sins and struggles? Probably not. When Peter preached repentance, what he was preaching is don't give... Obviously, when you become a new creation, you give these things up over time as the Lord works in your life. So he wasn't talking about give up the porn and all those things. I think those things are important to give up. But he was saying when he said repent, turn from your unbelief in Jesus Christ. Quit relying on yourself. He's your only hope. To not say that when the gospel is preached is to do violence to the word of God and to people. It is to mislead them. Repentance is the doorway into salvation. So Paul told his listeners that before Jesus came, John the Baptist had come to prepare the way by preaching repentance and baptizing people. Now let's look at what Paul said in verse 25. Let's begin to look at that. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, 
but behold, after me is coming, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. Towards the end of John's ministry, some scribes and Pharisees came out to question him, thinking that he might be the Messiah. They asked John who he was. John told them that he was not the Messiah and that he was so much lower than the one to come that he wasn't even worthy to perform the lowest act of service for him, which was to untie his sandals. Look at what else John said in John 3, 25 to 30. You know what? I think I'm going to end it there. I'm running out of time because this next section is so rich and I'd hate to just fly right through it. And, and not treat it the way that it needs to be treated. Let's just back right up and end at verse 24. Is that okay with you? You're probably wanting to rock and roll, aren't you? But I can't because the clock's telling me I've rocked and I rolled. <laughs> I, I, I just want to keep preaching, man. You know, that's why I can preach for an hour and a half and you guys are yelling, give us Brabus. But not all of you. Some of you like the longer preaching. I do, but I like to listen to myself. My wife tells me that all the time. <laughs> Anyways, I'm going to close it up. Let's just end with that thought of repentance, and we'll, and we'll transition next Sunday right back into 25, and then we'll begin to further flesh it out. But why don't we just settle on right now on this whole notion of repentance? And that's pretty much where we've ended anyways. That's where we can bring it to a close. My hope and prayer is that you've heard from God clearly today. That you realize there is a false message out there in the world that says you're just fine as you are and just keep going. Just do more good things and you'll be all right. And I hope you've heard clearly from the word of God that that's a lie. That, that those are doctrines that come directly from Satan himself. And I hope you've heard that very clearly that not only do you need to turn and switch directions, You've got to turn towards someone. And that someone's Jesus Christ. As Paul said, he's the Savior of Israel. Or not Paul, but yeah, Paul. Paul preached it. Paul said he's the Savior of Israel. Last week I said he's the Savior of the world because that's what the Scripture goes on to say. He is the Savior of Israel. He is the Savior of the world, the one and only. There is no other way. Turn from your self-sufficiency and sin. And turn towards the cross, turn towards Jesus Christ, and believe on him, and ye shall be saved. Your life will change. It will. The Holy Spirit will come and fill you and lead you and guide you. And it's a bit of a bumpy road here and there, but it's the road of great joy, unspeakable joy. There is nothing in this world like knowing Jesus. Nothing. You're listening to a man who has stood for the better part of his life at the buffet of life and tried everything. Every single thing I've tried. Booze, sex, hobby after hobby, Everything imaginable, everything that is out there. I think I've pretty much, drugs, I think I've tried just about everything to fill that hole. But to no avail. 
only until I came to know Jesus did my life begin to change. That's it. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. That's the truth. Many in this room, many in this room have turned from their sin by God's grace and by His leading and put your faith and trust in Jesus. There might be someone in here that has it, maybe one of these younger people. I beg you to do so. You think you're living right now. You're not. You are not living. Only until you have Christ are you truly living. Amen? Amen. We're going to have a time of communion. I thought I would read what I printed earlier out of a book that I've been reading, a freebie book. I love those little free e-books. I slap them right on my iPad and start right. You, know, you love those? You get those? Little freebies? It's a great book. It's called Blood Work. It's by a guy named Anthony Carter, and it, it's all about the blood of Jesus and, and what it accomplishes for us and does for, un, for uh, the elect or for those who are in Christ. He says this. I quote, The cup of blessing is a visible and tangible reminder that we are in Christ and Christ in us. It reminds us of the intimate and inseparable union we share with Him. His life and death are ours because His body was broken for us and His blood was shed for us. We are His and He is ours. His blood sealed our union with Him. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? Simple little paragraph, but yet so profound. We're going to take these elements and we're going to sit right in the very presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right at His dining table, if you will. And those elements, that cup of blessing, that bread, those things represent His precious blood that was spilled to remove your sin. To pay the price, to make a propitiation for your sin. That blood, actually that juice in that cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the most precious resource, the most valuable of all currency the world has ever seen. The world will never see anything that is as costly as that blood. When you take that cup, you ponder that. You ponder how deep and wide and broad and damning your sin was. You look at that juice and you think of the blood of Jesus which takes away that sin like that. And it removes it as far as the east is from the west. Out of sight. How spectacular. And when you look at that bread, think of the scourging. Think of the crown of thorns. Think of the spear through his side. Think of those nails through his hands and wrists, or through his hands and ankle, ankles. His body that was broken for you. Wow. Take a moment to confess your sin. 
and then take those elements. His blood sealed our union with him. Right now, we get to do the most astonishing, amazing thing. It's as if we get to ingest our Savior, to take him in deeply. How wonderful is that? Father, bless this time. May we repent. Even the saints need to repent. Each day we take on a new sin, some self-sufficiency, some, something that we believe will satisfy us. We spend our money on these things. We invest all the while we're just trying to find our hope in something other than you. Oh, Christ, may you be our only hope. May we confess our sins to you and enjoy this time and remember what these elements represent. Covenant, an eternal covenant of love and mercy, grace, joy, elation, all because, Jesus, what you did was to grant us permission and make a path for us to spend our eternity in the presence of your Father. I can't wait for that day. May we continue to glorify you now. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.